0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome on into another Rooted Podcast, of course, brought to you by our awesome friends over at Green Bros, home of the world's leading industry solutions for harvesting for the hemp and cannabis space. Tim Strom will coming to you from our Rooted Podcast production studio out here in beautiful Denver Colorado thanks for tuning in don't forget to subscribe to the show and shoot us a quick five-star rating on iTunes if you like what we're doing we'd certainly appreciate it a quick note that we will be at MJ biz in Vegas in early December recording live podcast episodes all week so if you're an industry entrepreneur and you want to get on the show shoot us a message and perhaps you might be one of our next guests we're really excited to shoot our episodes out there we've got a killer space thanks to our partners over at Greenberg that overlooks the entire show floor. So this is going to be a very exciting couple days of recording episodes for us. And we'd love to have you on the show again. If you're an industry entrepreneur, reach out and maybe we'll get you on the show. Okay, on today's show, we're going to be talking all about CBD as we've been, as we've invited one of the most knowledgeable CBD experts that I've been referred to in the space today, Martin A. Lee. He's going to join us on the show in just a minute. How knowledgeable would you say? Well, hold on and let me tell you. Martin is the co-founder and director of Project CBD, an educational service focusing on cannabis science and therapeutics, named by High Times as one of the most 100 Influential People in Cannabis. Lee is the author of several books, including most recently Smoke Signals, A Social History of Marijuana, Medical, Recreational, and Scientific. That came out in 2013. Also, the American Botanical Council gave Smoke Signals its James A. Duke Excellence in Botanical Literature Award. So that's pretty cool. Lee is also a winner of the Pope Foundation Award for Investigative Journalism. And his first book, Acid Dreams, is a best-selling social history of LSD. In addition to those successful projects, he's also been published in numerous, really just countless online and uh, print periodicals: The Washington Post, L.A. Times, Rolling Stone, Harper's, Daily Beast.com, Salon.com, Huffington Post.com, Miami Herald, San Francisco Chronicle, Newsday, San Jose Mercury News, and I could go on and on and on. I'm not going to because it's a short show. Uh, we'll welcome in Martin in just a second to ask him a myriad of CBD-related questions, but first do have to let you know this podcast brought to you by our wonderful friends over at Greenbros. again home of the world's premier dry harvesting solutions for the hemp and cannabis space from small scale cultivations all the way up to commercial grows we're talking the biggest grows in the world Greenbros has dry trimmers trichome extractors destemmers sorters precision batchers all these machines want to save you time money and labor while not sacrificing on the quality of your flour. you got to check them out greenbros.com or call 844 dry trim to schedule a consultation a demo to learn more about their machines again 844 dry trim you can also check them out at uh, mj bizcon in vegas december 11th to the 13th in booth C3339. So if you're in the area, uh, make plans to stop by Green Bros booth again, C3339. Okay, without any further ado on the show, let's go ahead and welcome in our guest for this afternoon. Again, his name is Martin A. Lee. He's the co-founder and director of Project CBD. You can check them out, projectcbd.org, the leading educational resource on CBD and medical cannabis linked in the description below, of course. So scroll down, click that link and check out their site, see what they're all about. Martin, welcome on into the show, man. How are you this afternoon?
1: I'm okay. Thank you very much.
0: Cool. We're glad to have you on the show. Uh, now, before we dive into the CBD questions uh, I have for you, I kind of want to uh, learn a little bit about your backstory. I mean, you've been a journalist for a long time, covering cannabis, CBD, LSD, among a lot of other things as well. What got you into the world of journalism? And then what pushed you to pursue stories uh, you know, with CBD, cannabis, and psychedelics?
1: Big question. In terms of cannabis... Based in Northern California, as a journalist, uh, I was observing what was going on with medical cannabis. It, it was legalized in 1996 in California, and yet, uh, nearly 10 years later, there still were raids going on, uh, police who were roughing up folks in wheelchairs, and, and the question is, why is this pressure being exerted, whether it's from federal, state, or local authorities? on people using cannabis when it was illegal to do so, if they had a letter from the doctor. And that opened the door to uh, many questions that I had never entertained before. Uh, The most obvious one was, well, if no one's talking about medical cannabis, what's the reality? What's the science behind it? And and in terms of trying to understand what the, the, the the scientific validity of therapeutic applications, I began to uh, study it in a variety of ways, including attending conferences of scientists who had convened from around the world on an annual basis, talking about their latest discoveries um, based on their research focusing on the endocannabinoid system. And really that opened a, a door for me that I had been unaware of, and it opened up a whole new world, quite fascinating. Um, and really the endocannabinoid system in a nutshell is why cannabis works, why CBD and THC um, have effects, therapeutic therapeutic effects and otherwise. So that really kind of, I I got bitten by the bug and and I've never um, stopped since because it is a fascinating area. It's a very dynamic area of science and it continues to unfold in ways that have really significant implications, not only for individual health, but I think for society as a whole.
0: Now, were you covering other arenas before you jumped into these kind of projects? What were you doing before?
1: Well, yes, my previous book, uh, Prior to Smoke Signals, was a social history on um, uh, neo-fascism, right-wing extremism, research racism, which unfortunately is still quite timely as a subject today. Um, uh, that was focused on what happened in Germany with the Berlin Wall coming down, the Cold War ending. And surprisingly, in some ways... Uh, it sparked a resurgence of extremism, of nationalism, and so forth. And uh, That was a whole area of study that I spent quite a while on and, and wrote a book called The Beast Reawakens, uh, which is still in print and, as I said, unfortunately all too relevant today
0: so you're talking about 20 to 25 years now where you've been covering the topic of cannabis and and cbd is there any way you can kind of contextualize what the amount of information was like when you first started in terms of what you could research and what information was out there versus where we are now and what this last 20 years has done in terms of information available to people like you who want to do the research
1: well you know, because of prohibition, because of marijuana prohibition, there's a restriction on uh, clinical research. It's very, very difficult for scientists to access the plant matter, still today, to do the research, uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, but there's been a lot of preclinical studies with animals, uh, test tubes, petri dishes, and so forth, using sometimes isolated molecules, isolated compounds from the cannabis plant, but more often than not, synthetic uh cannabinoids, as uh, they've been called, synthetic compounds that scientists created back in the 1980s, 1990s, and still are creating to the present day, that uh, enable them to target with great specificity and great potency particular aspects of the endocannabinoid system, the receptors in the brain and the body, the the different compounds that activate these receptors and so forth. So that opened up a lot of uh, interesting insights into how things function, how How the brain works, how it's affected uh, by uh, gut microbiota, for example, and and many different aspects of human physiology, uh, which are modified and regulated by the endocannabinoid system, the insights into the functioning of these various systems, into the diseases that result from the dysfunction, has been really uh, uh, greatly amplified by the research into cannabinoids. Again, there's a kind of a schizophrenia or a disparity. What we have right now is a lot of anecdotal reports that people are, are, are saying that cannabis helps, CBD helps, THC helps uh, for various things. And we have a great deal of preclinical work, animal studies, actually that tend to validate the, the um, anecdotal claims. But what's missing? Largely are the clinical studies that would quote-unquote confirm, according to the FDA, that indeed a cannabis or CBD um, are valid medications for those specific uh, um, conditions. So we're sort of in a, in a funny place, and we've been here for a while, but slowly it's changing. Uh, CBD has been approved as a pharmaceutical now, uh, single-molecule CBD, CBD as an isolant. Uh, for use in treating certain severe conditions of pediatric epilepsy, children with these terrible seizure disorders. But other than that, uh, according to the official government stance, uh, CBD is only valid for that purpose. And cannabis, uh, lest we forget, is still considered by the federal government a, a drug which has no medical value and which is dangerous for humans to consume, which is pretty much like saying the moon is made of green cheese. It's so out of touch with the reality, and yet that's the official federal position. Well, you know, we've been chipping away at that from the grassroots, and and, and CBD has gone a long way toward loosening things up, but we've still got a ways to go. And ultimately, I think the, the full medical value of CBD and of cannabis really won't be realized until cannabis prohibition as a whole, and it's not just a prohibition against CBD.
0: You know, Martin, something I'm curious about, having all of this knowledge and having dived into the research behind the CBD uh, receptors, cann- cannabinoid receptors, all that kind of stuff, how do you talk about it in your personal life when you talk with you know, relatives, friends, family who think, oh, I've got this ailment, I've heard CBD can do this? Are you someone who doesn't mind that the evidence is only anecdotal or are you still hesitant to talk about it in in a very useful medical term uh... how do you approach it
1: well i wouldn't say it's just anecdotal and i nor would i minimize the significance of anecdotal evidence i, I think that there are there's a kind of a hierarchy of, of uh, data that uh... is is um, uh, considered uh, this, Kind of a hierarchy of, va- of data that's validated or prioritized by the federal government. Uh, if the FDA says it's a medicine, it's a medicine. If the FDA doesn't say it's a medicine, it's not a medicine. And frankly, that kind of black and white bifurcation just doesn't correspond to reality. There, there's many uh, medicines that have a great deal of historical or traditional usage that, uh, and, and, and are as far as you know, are, are safe. People use herbs. People have been using herbs for time immemorial. Just because they haven't gone through double-blind, um, the gold standard uh, clinical trials, that doesn't mean they're not valid med- medication. That just means that there's different criteria for, for judging that. But uh, You know, I think cannabis is, is, is very persuasive as an herb, and, and I've spoken to many different audiences, from, uh, from seniors to, to you know soccer moms, to the whole gamut. And one can make a very persuasive case that there's a lot going on with cannabis as a medicine. And I think in terms of our culture, that's partially accepted now. It, it might not be a lot of knowledge of the specifics of why it works or how it works, but the notion that cannabis has met therapeutic value, I think, is widely accepted now in, in, in the culture. In a sense, that culture war has been fought, and and, and cannabis came out victorious. Um, Unfortunately, the the political realm tends to tag behind, and and, and it's sort of the caboose on the the social change train. Where things change culturally, initially, um, we sometimes have to wait then for the politicians and and the law to catch up, and I think we're in that transition period now, but there's no doubt we are in the midst of a pro-cannabis cultural shift, and there's no doubt in my mind that CBD has... Played a very significant role as a catalyst uh, of that shift, but I should emphasize that shift was already ongoing before CBD re-entered the picture, which is only about ten years ago now. Um, we were already having a, a we already seeing a pro cannabis cultural shift before then, but CBD accentuated and then accelerated that I think to a large to a significant degree.
0: And that's a great point that I haven't really considered myself is, you know, 10 years ago, I, you know, the majority of even the cannabis space probably hadn't even heard of CBD. You know, there were no thoughts of CBD balms and tinctures and stuff like that. So as big as the market is, and people think the CBD market's going to be bigger than the cannabis market overall, it is amazing that the past 10 years really gave birth to that side, their reemergence, like you said, of CBD as compared to cannabis. Well,
1: I think there were a number of factors that really made it very very fertile turf for the CBDC to have been planted in the medical marijuana world. Initially in California, it spread from there. But, you know, there was another factor that, that happened really about the same time, and that's the, the emergence of these very potent uh, cannabis oil extracts. Uh, I mean, going back several de- decades, I remember in my, my teenage days, we, we had hash hash oil. Uh, but when we're talking about the, the extracts of cannabis oil today, it, it's more refined, certainly more potent, and more prevalent. And, and the, the, the um, availability, the access to cannabis oil extracts, kind of it happens about the same time that CBD uh, reemerged as a factor in, in cannabis uh, therapeutics and cannabis experience in, in the West. Um, so I think it's the combination of those two factors, CBD and the potent oil extracts, which have really transformed the therapeutic landscape with respect to cannabis. I mean, you know, before that people smoked weed, uh, maybe they ate a brownie, but you know, the, there are you know, some topicals and so forth, but it was very early on. It's a Uh, the very beginnings of what we now call the industry, Um, but the the CBD and the extracts have been hugely influential in in terms of moving things forward uh, exponentially compared to where they were just 10 years ago.
0: Again, Martin is the co-founder and director of Project CBD. If we could jump to that project now, uh, what is Project CBD all about and why did you co-found it?
1: Project CBD was formed 10 years ago when uh, a colleague of mine, Fred Gardner, also a journalist, uh, he and I learned uh, from the first analytical labs that emerged in northern California to test the strains, to test the different cultivars. Basically, to said how much THC was in there. The idea the higher the number, the better, which actually is really not necessarily the case. But... Um, what we informed the lab speaker labs in oakland the first one about cbd they didn't really know much about it it wasn't known within the medical community uh we didn't expect that they would find any plants that they were testing that would have much cbd in it, it was it was assumed that the, the impetus was the focus really was on developing strains that Uh, the different flavors of the uh, uh, different psychoactive flavors, if you will, the the perfect hive and the different different ways of being high that that, the cannabis breeders were were perfecting. That's what their focus was. And I think inadvertently what happened is that the CBD genetics kind of got phased out. But uh, because of all the promiscuous interbreeding, occasionally among all the brown-eyed THC plants, a blue eye popped up and then... well, it's really like one out of five hundred, one out of a thousand plants that that uh, Steep Hill initially tested that had any CBD in a, in a notable quantity. But when when that when they were identified, uh, we talked to the breeders, and they got very excited when, when we told them what we had learned about CBD with respect to what scientists were doing with mice, and the idea was that if the uh, what. The question that was posed right away, it was very exciting, this discoveries 10 years ago of these early plants, that uh, what would happen if people actually started to use these CBD-rich plants? Would it be anything like what we had heard about at the science conferences with respect to CBD, where it was emerging as sort of the all-star compound, but what we heard about was only in terms of what it did to mice and what it did to the brains of of, of, uh, other mammals, not humans. but what we heard about was astonishing, and the question really was, would this be replicated when people actually started using CBD-rich cannabis? And I, I think our our uh, hopes and our our assumptions there has borne out that it really does have tremendous medical value. We we saw that right away for, for various things, neurological conditions, pain, and so forth. Um, but more than that, you know, at at that time there was a lot of. Uh, pressure on the medical cannabis world in California. There was federal raids. There was letters to landlords. There, it, it, it was um, even though this was in the uh, early Obama years, it wasn't a cakewalk for for medical cannabis uh, users or, or producers. Um, and we felt that because CBD is not psychoactive in the way THC it it, because it's not intoxicating, and because it does have a lot of therapeutic potential. This could really be a game changer. It could be the key to liberating cannabis from the drug abuse paradigm. And that's what we felt very early on, that it it, it could have great therapeutic value, but also in a broader social sense, it could have value in that it it could be the, the straw that ultimately breaks the back of prohibition. And while I think it's too soon to say that, things seem to be moving in that direction.
0: Again, we want to let you know this podcast brought to you by our awesome friends over at Green Bros, home of the world's leading cannabis and hemp harvesting solutions. And Green Bros recently announced the launch of their new Model M dry trimmer, which improves on all previous models. We're talking full surgical stainless steel anywhere the flower touches the machine and an impressive yet simplified design. That means this new dry trimmer will still put up serious volume while being easier to clean, break down, and reassemble the control panel has been moved outside the machine so you can power wash it, scrub it down without fear, all while speeding up your turn time even more and processing faster than you ever have. Also, the new stainless steel design means no nooks or crannies, ensuring that your machine stays clean and compliant with regulations now and for years to come. This is just another Green Bros. machine that you have to see to believe. Hit them up at 844-379-8746. That's Four, six, or online at info at greenbros.com to learn more. All right, Martin, one of the things I wanted to be sure to discuss was Project CBD's report on synthetic cannabinoids and vaping-related lung injuries. I saw you mention that in the pre-interview, and I wanted to see are those two separate reports or are they linked at all?
1: Uh, it's, it's a single report we put out now on uh, related to the vaping crisis, the, the vaping-related lung injuries. Well, Project CBD has done identified what we think is a is a factor that has been thus far ignored by the CDC Centers for Disease Control. Uh, it's not been part of the discussion, and that is the role that synthetic cannabinoids uh, are playing in, in these injuries. And we we do think they are a factor. Um, our our lead scientist, a writer, uh, reviewed. Uh, uh, did a thorough review of the scientific literature on the um, effects of synthetic cannabinoids on the harms induced by them and what we found is that the symptoms of toxicity from synthetic cannabinoid exposure are pretty much identical to what the CDC is describing as um, criteria for classifying a a particular case as, as one of the lung injuries uh, related to vaping. So there's a match in terms of symptomology, um, but w- what's, what's interesting here is that uh, it has been ignored thus far, and I think there's reason that the CDC and others are focusing on other factors, and I don't think there is a single factor responsible for the more than thousand deaths and many other injuries that have res- resulted from exposure uh, to, to toxic uh, vaping products. And I should emphasize, uh, most of these products are are Uh, been circulating on the black market. They're not part of the licensed industry. Um, But it's also crept in there a little bit. Uh, See, what happened is this, you know, I mentioned in terms of studying the endocannabinoid system, the scientists back in the 1980s and 1990s, because they were not legally allowed to work with the cannabis plant, they had to create very potent compounds that were cannabinoid-like compounds, that were synthetic if not versions of things you find in cannabis, uh, synthetic compounds that could target the same receptors. Uh, they're very, very potent and they work with these compounds, this is fully legitimate, uh, to study how the brain work, to study how different organ systems work, to study how the, the, the system that cannabis affects directly, how, it, how it's involved in all this. Um, and these, these, the formula for these compounds were published in scientific journals. Unfortunately, Um, unethical actors uh, got a hold of these uh, formula and and began producing these as as street drugs and uh, the first ones to emerge were known as spice and k2 and things like this and and in a sense the name synthetic cannabinoid or synthetic marijuana while good PR if you want to sell a product um, is not really accurate because these compounds are not structurally the same as THC or anything like that they just happen to hit the same receptors in a very very powerful way and in a qualitatively different way uh, from THC, which is why with THC you can't overdose uh, in terms of uh, having a lethal outcome. You can't die from it, but you can from exposure from from a synthetic cannabinoid. And what happens here is you have folks who who are um, uh, trying to sell, uh, produce black market products uh, that are going to appeal to youth. So they call them synthetic marijuana um, they create these oils, which might not have any cannabis oil extract in your oil, but they just start with the starter oil or something. And it might even be something like propylene glycol, which is a chemical uh, thinning agent that's used actually in some canna- uh, cannabis products. But they, they start with an oil uh, that's kind of a neutral thing. It doesn't get you high or anything. Um, and then because it's it needs to be thickened, they introduce something like vitamin E acetate, which thickens the oil to get it to be the consistency of a cannabis-like oil, a cannabis-like oil extract. Um, but it still, it has no potency. So what they do is they stick in a little bit of a synthetic can- a cannabinoid to sort of bump up the potency. And they only need very, very little because it's so potent, these compounds. And then they sell this stuff on the black market claiming it's quote-unquote synthetic marijuana. And that's why you, you and, and the problem is because it's, it, it's very difficult to detect these compounds when people take them uh, because it, they're, they're so potent in such low doses we don't have the screening mechanisms uh, we, we, like we do for, let's say, pesticides or heavy metals when looking at cannabis products. We don't have the same screen or the valid screening mechanisms yet to spot what are now hundreds of different synthetic cannabinoids that are circulating on the black market. So we're really in a, between a rock and a hard place because you know, the fact of the matter, in, in our society, according to the surveys, the average age someone turns on to, to weed, He's almost 15 years old, 14 years, 10 months, something like that. Um, I'm not commenting on that, whether it's good or bad, but that's a fact. And if you're a young person and you turn on to weed and you like it uh, and you want to keep doing it, it helps you with stress or whatever, um, and you don't want to go to school smelling like weed, you want to vape that. But if you're 14 years old, you can't walk into a dispensary and buy, buy a vape cartridge. You can only get something that's circulating on the ground. And that's why it's very dangerous in this situation, because young people are being exposed to, to products that are that have uh, potentially lethal uh, effects, and, and we're seeing the results. And I should emphasize it's not just synthetic cannabinoids here that are the problem. It's many of the additives that we find in in, uh, vape oil products, including in the legal market, the the flavoring agents, the thinning and thickening agents, none of this stuff should really be there. Um, There are good brands that produce good quality, clean oil uh, that doesn't need these kind of additives. And um, that's, I think, what what people should be reaching for if they want to vape, because the long-term effects of things like artificial flavoring agents, the thinning agents, the thickening agents, we don't really know but what we do know uh, raises some warning signs. Um, and so I think that one should be careful about you know what they access and what they use uh, and be very, very discriminating as consumers.
0: And that's the part that I get confused on and kind of want your opinion on. If the people creating this product, if you're getting down to the molecular level where you're doing all this science to create an end product that's dangerous for people that might be consuming it, Is there any way that they don't know that it's gonna be a dangerous product? It seems like if you're researching everything that's going into this, the vitamin E acetate, the thinning agents, kind of like you said, the synthetic cannabinoids, they have to know as they're doing it, there's some sort of danger. And then you see stories come out of these injuries, the vape-related lung injuries, like you said, uh, but the products are still on the market. Like, how is this happening?
1: Well, they, they're on the black mark. That, that, that's the key thing to emphasize, really. That's really where the danger lies most of all. Um, but, but I should emphasize that uh, many of the additives found in, in vape pens, whether the legal or illegal products, many of these additives are approved by the FDA, but they've been approved as ingestible compounds, not as compounds that are heated and inhaled. Because when you heat a compound, you change its structure. You can make it something that's less dangerous or something that's much more dangerous. It changes the nature of the actual molecule. Uh, and because there is a, uh, what the FDA calls uh, generally regarded as, safe, grass, uh, the, that, that criteria applies to things like propylene glycol, this thinning agent, which is, according to the FDA, safe to ingest as part of an edible, let's say, or, or in some other kind of product, but uh, there's been very, very little safety data shown for what happens when you heat it and inhale it. And what we do know in the case of propylene glycol, it becomes a carcinogen. And propylene glycol is widely used as a thinning agent in uh, um, illegal cannabis products. So because the FDA approves it, uh, for one thing, it it encourages people to have a a confidence that they shouldn't have, that it'll be safe for other means. I think part of it is just a kind of a enthusiasm, a rush to market, a lack of reflection on the fact that there could be differences. Uh, We've been ringing this bell for a while now at Project CBD. We published, I think back in 2015, some of the first articles about the dangers of some of these additives. But I don't think it's these sort of attitudes, excuse me, I don't think flavoring agents and thinning agents, thickening agents, are really what's causing the, the current uh, lung-related illnesses, the, the, the vaping crisis today. But the the these additives that I just mentioned could have long-term effects with serious repercussions. And, and I think we we've just scratching the surface of, I think, what the problems might be. And, and But these very, very dramatic acute cases, we feel at Project CBD oftentimes... Are related to exposure to this super potent so called synthetic cannabinoid.
0: Now, as someone who has expertise in cannabis therapeutics, CBD, what are your thoughts on the passing of the Farm Bill in late 2018 and how it's helped to progress the industry over the past year?
1: Well, it's very, very important, the Farm Bill. It, it um, partially corrected a, a historical anomaly and historical injustice when the Farm Bill essentially carved out a legal exception to the Controlled Substance Act, according to which uh, uh, cannabis is, uh, because it has THC in it, uh, is uh, considered dangerous and having no medical value. But we have sort of this absurd situation. What the Farm Bill has done, I think, is in some ways uh, not only been an impetus for the the, uh, the entire uh, hemp industry, and a lot of it has to do with CBD, of course, but it's highlighted the contradictions within in, uh, federal policy and drug policy. Right now, a cannabis plant with 0.4% THC is considered a dangerous drug with no medical value. A cannabis plant with 0.3% THC is not considered a dangerous drug with with no medical value. You know, that's an absurd situation, and it's, uh, it's important because it opens up some space and, and, and advances. Uh, I think, the accessibility to uh, CBD products, but still, it, it, we're still mired in, in the contradictions of federal drug policy. Um, I, one could be cynical about it and, and call the Farm Bill um, the Keep Marijuana Illegal Act, uh, but it's, it, and it, it's both. It's, it's legalizing the hemp version of cannabis, uh, but, it, it, but uh, any other form of cannabis is still illegal. And as a result, we're going to always have problems in terms of regulation and, and, and implementing the, the law. You know, it, What are you going to do? You You're growing plants, and inspector goes out in the field, but if it goes out in the field very late in the game, just before harvest, the whole uh, hemp harvest will, will fail because it's above 0.3% THC, but if you go out just early on it, you know, I and mean, then what happens when you extract the oil from, from a, a legal hemp harvest? Anytime you extract oil, you concentrate, so the the amount of CBD in the oil will go up, and so will the amount of THC. So inevitably, when you extract oil from a CBD rich, low THC plant, you'll be handling an illegal substance because the oil will contain THC at greater levels than point three percent THC, even though even if it's uh, still very minor. Um, so anyone working with these plants or manufacturing them, the oils and, and products based on the oils, is going to be committing a crime federally at some point along the line. Okay, then they can take the THC out. Back. But then, so where is all this THC going that they're taking out? That's what I want. <laughs> um, I think probably somewhere underground there's huge vats of THC being stored because you have the soap Called uh, broad spectrum oils with just the THC removed, everything else kept in there, and then you have all the isolates, everything removed but but uh, CBD. But, but where's all the THC going? That's a big mystery, <laughs> I think. <it's- laughs> but anyway, it, it just it's it's one of those things where uh, uh, we are in a straight of transition. Uh, it, it, it's two steps forward, one step back. Uh, we legalize him uh, vis-à-vis the farm bill, but the FDA is still sort of sitting on its butt and not uh, declaring what's legal and what's not as a product. I mean, technically speaking right now, um, anything other than Epidiolex, the pharmaceutical version of CPD that's been approved by the FDA, anything other than that is illegal as a product. Um, but that's not the way the reality is playing out people have access to it you can buy it on the internet there's cbd stores all over the place you get it in your gas station your, your chiropractor's office and so forth and also in medical cannabis dispensaries but um so the reality again politically legally hasn't caught up with the culture the culture has embraced Cbd the culture wants CBD and people can access Cbd uh, but the law is way way
0: behind them Talking to someone like you, I have to ask, what do you think does finally move that needle and allow the government and federal agencies to catch up with where basically the rest of mainstream society is with the availability of these products?
1: I think the needle has been moved culturally. It's just uh, waiting. It, it's sort of like we broke broken the sound area. We're waiting to hear the echo. It hasn't quite come back yet, the political echo from, from the cultural experience. Um, It might be a simple change in administration. Some of the leading Democratic candidates uh, have come out in favor of carte Black uh, uh, cannabis legalization, adult use, not just for medical use. Um, So things might change with that. Maybe they'll change before the the change of administration. It could happen anytime and it can happen with dramatic suddenness in a way. Uh, uh, And yet it could also drag on for a long time because we've had now Prohibition and the first reefer madness, and then what I call now reefer madness life that still persists. Um, It's been since 1937, so it's been you know 80 80 years, more than 80 years, and yet it can change just like that overnight. You know, I I compare it to in Germany when there was the Berlin Wall and the country was divided in two during the communist days. And least when I was growing up, we just thought that was something you know like in cement. It was. It was this Cold War, U.S. versus the Soviet Union, uh, and that that was just the way it was. It it was it 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 was just never going to change. It just seemed like such a a, a political certitude. And overnight, the the wall came down, and and so much changed in Eastern Europe. Um, And I think it could be similar for uh, uh, the cannabis world as well. The 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 Berlin Wall that that divides Hampton from the rest of cannabis could come down very very quickly. Uh, but i'm not sure if everybody's prepared for that because you know it, it, just to continue that analogy in germany uh when when people in the in communist germany east germany were, were um, uh, campaigning against the government campaigning for reforms um uh, they were overwhelmed when the wall came down and all those groups that were you know fighting to reform their country and these these were the ecologists and the punks and the bikers and the and the protestant pastors they were they wanted a, rev- a peaceful revolution. Well, all that was lost once the wall came down, and, and and sort of West Germany swallowed up East Germany. And I I, I don't need to dwell too much on that analogy, but I th- I think uh, in a sense uh, that could be happening. We taking shape in, in in the cannabis world as well. I think we've seen it with. Um, what, what happened in Canada with, with, with the, the hugely inflated values of, of these um, uh, companies in the stock market? Because now they've literally gone up in smoke, you know, but, but that, that kind of sudden rush for, for embracing uh, uh, cannabis as an, as an economic, um, uh, embracing the economic potential of cannabis. Um, will change a lot, and it already has changed a lot, certainly in states like California. It's, it's quite sobering when you consider most of the businesses, most of the players, if you will, who were active before legalization for adult use, which was enacted in, ultimately, 2017 in, in, in California, most of those businesses don't exist anymore. So that the flood came and, and wiped them all out. And, and uh, it's a changed world. Uh, I'm, it's a mixed mixed blessing in a lot of ways a lot of positive maybe some negative as well but we're working it out hopefully it'll get normalized by these days
0: so projectcbd.org again is the website people can go check out it's an educational resource for you i want to put you on the spot why is project cbd a resource that people should go check out and they should trust uh, so much of this industry still feels like a wild west with people saying this or that. Uh, obviously, your credentials are something I've already talked about and your uh, awards are something I've talked about. But why should people be going to ProjectCBD.org?
1: Well, we were the first really, to educate the cannabis community about CBD. And, and we had staying power. Um, our work is well documented. And, and we're not commercial. We're not uh, we're not about selling a specific brand or a specific product. We won't find advertisements on our site. We do obviously relate to the cannabis industry. I'm the consultant for certain cannabis companies. But um, we, we try, we feel in some ways that sort of over-commercialization is part of the disease of our culture. And we try to cut against the grain. Um, we're not cheerleaders, yet we have great enthusiasm and respect for the potential of the cannabis plant, not just CBD but the whole plant and the other components as well. Uh, But ultimately, you know, take a look. If you haven't seen our site, uh, give it a visit and and see what you think. And and, uh, uh, I feel that what we've tried to do is um, win the respect of scientists uh, to, to write and report on this area in a way that the scientists would respect, but the layperson would understand. And I think we Sometimes achieve that very well, that balance. Sometimes we go more in one direction or the other. But that's always been our goal.
0: Now tell me what's coming up for Project CBD. Are there, uh, you know, is there research you're excited about? Are there studies you're working on? Uh, What can people look forward to when they start following you guys?
1: Well, we just put out this report on synthetic cannabinoids and uh, uh, vaping related lung injuries. It was only part one of the report. We're going to come up uh, with a a second part in in a few weeks that really looks how uh, uh, policy has really produced this crisis at every step of the way. Um, But in addition to the special reports we occasionally come out with, we we did an extensive report on, for example, on uh, drug interactions with uh, cannabinoids, with CBD and THC. We felt that now that uh, cannabis is being widely used in in a therapeutic context, and because CBD in particular interacts with so many pharmaceuticals, we, we wanted to put out a report, particularly for, for physicians and doctors and other health professionals, so they can keep it in mind the, the potential for drug interactions. So, um, but we'll, we'll come out with other uh, reports in the future, but basically it's our ongoing reporting. Um, what do we have in the pipeline? We're gonna be coming out with a pretty serious scholarly article on the endocannabinoid system and sex. Uh, I know sex is always a big seller and a hot topic, but cannabis and sex go together quite well, people claim. Well, why? And it turns out that when you look at the endocannabinoid system and how it functions, it it provides a scientific uh, validation, I think, for claims that people uh, make saying that uh, sex is improved with cannabis, orgasms are better, et cetera, et cetera. So we took a deep dive into this. That'll be coming out soon. Um, our next uh, report will be something about seniors and, and the latest research showing uh, the potential for cannabis therapeutics for seniors and what the risks are as well. Uh, but really, we covered the gamut, and not just therapeutic uh, subjects. We, we're interested in uh, what, what's been described as the Green New Deal. I just see it as not so much a political thing, but uh, just the implications for uh you know, improving our environment, our ecology, and dealing with climate change and, and what that means for our future. But how does cannabis play into that? How, how does the cannabis industry play into that? I think there's some really interesting, innovative re- uh, experimentation being done, particularly in the area of regenerative agriculture that cannabis farmers have been at the forefront of. And that's the kind of thing that anyone interested in something like a Green New Deal would have paid close attention to. There's a lot that's been happening in the cannabis space that has that, that that can offer something for people uh, who who want to pursue that kind of agenda. And yet, on the other hand, there's also some really big problems in the cannabis space with respect to pollution, or with respect to um, uh, just you know industrial cannabis and the quality of, of of having some problems. And, and that that uh, maybe they can learn from the ethos of what's being proposed as a green deal. So this is something we want to address. We want to address these bigger questions. But what if really cannabis was uh, uh, widely used as a therapeutic and actually was uh, one could get insurance covered. What would it mean in terms of the overall cost for health care in the United States, for individuals in the United States? No one has ever really crunched the numbers. We hear that people, when they use cannabis, tend to use less pharmaceuticals. Well, that means, we suggest that they're getting health care. And what does that mean in terms of money saved for healthcare? So there's all sorts of questions that we're interested in. But first and foremost is how cannabis can help people uh, improve their health, uh, whether they're struggling with a very serious ailment or whether they're just trying to live a healthy lifestyle.
0: Martin you mentioned a number of things that tick my interest and so as you guys come up with these new studies and new informative blocks you're releasing to the public I'd love to get you back on the show to talk about it so open road open dialogue let us know whenever you have stuff like this you want to bring to attention Uh, and we'll jump back in because I only I mean I probably have another five or six questions I didn't get to but I want to make sure I wrap it up because I know you're super busy Uh, so we'll have to get you back on the show okay man
1: your thing. We'd
0: love to. Again, his name is Martin A. Lee. He is the co-founder and director of Project CBD, the leading educational resource on CBD and medical cannabis. Go ahead and scroll down, hit up projectcbd.org. It's linked below in the description of this podcast. Uh, great work they're doing over there. A great team putting this stuff together. Very informative. And I'm personally really excited about the stuff they have on the horizon. But that's going to do it for us on the show this afternoon. Big thanks to our sponsors, Green Bros. Again, don't forget to check them out at MJ Biz in Las Vegas, booth c C33- 33 nine wait c three 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 nine there we go they had to make it tough on me uh but that's gonna do it for us on the program this afternoon thanks so much for listening don't forget to subscribe and give us a nice rating my name's been tim stromble i'll remind you one more time to work hard be humble and stay rooted see you next week everybody